0: England, 1216 A.D. Once upon a time, there lived a wicked and greedy king. And after many cruel years of stealing from his subjects and terrorizing the land he and his armies marched into a battle they could not win. The green hills of England grew red with blood. Brother fought against Brother, and the king's own subjects rose up against him while welcoming invaders from foreign lands. War. The people called it justice. The church called it a vengeance of God against a godless tyrant. While peasants shuttered their houses and tried to keep from their masters' battles, their children sung nursery rhymes in the dark, mocking the foolishness and evil of bad King John. The soft sword, the Lackland, John of England's ignoble epithets numbered that of his many vices. And when he marched his armies, battered and broken in body and spirit, from the siege of rebel-held Lincoln, those vices finally caught up with him. Once upon a time, there lived a misguided but honest king. After many exhausting years of fighting back, usurpers and rebels who spread lawlessness across his lands, he and his armies marched into a battle to win back control of the realm. The green hills of England grew red with blood, brother fought against brother, and traitors opportunists, and worst of all, the French, fermented rebellion against the English king. And after breaking up a rebellion in Lincoln, he received a hero's welcome in the city of King's Lynn, not to be confused with King's Landing. And yet his vices, nonetheless, caught up with him. Once upon a time, King John ruled, won, and lost medieval England and left a trail of controversy, conjecture, and corpses in his wake. And ever since, historians have painted the infamous Bad King John from many perspectives. Was he a tyrant, or a hero? A weak-hearted schemer, or a cunning general? Was his tumultuous reign brought on by his own corruption and greed, or the malicious influence of the company he kept? Was he secretly the most influential and progressive king of his time, signing into law one of the greatest social contracts of the last millennium, or was he forced into giving up his power for the sake of his people's rights? After 2,000 years of debate, a definitive answer is unlikely to materialize any time soon, as is that which was lost on a September day in 1216. Whatever debts John had accrued in his lifetime of gambling his people's fortunes, they came back to him in his quarters at King's Lynn, where he fell ill with dysentery. Stubborn and steadfast, two qualities befitting a war tactician such as himself, King John was unwilling to give up the battle, and he marched his armies and his supply train out towards his next campaign. He decided he would regroup at Lincolnshire, ...freshly taken from rebel hands where he would accumulate his forces. Though we often think of kings as taking up stationary residencies behind their castle walls... ...back in the day, the English monarchs of the Dark Ages were more nomadic... ...having several different fortresses in their key cities and rarely a centralized stronghold. And with rebellions all across the countryside, King John and his armies had to travel between city to city to win them back by force from the rebel barons. One such traitorous keep was Windsor Castle, King John's next mark. Before that, however, John's entourage needed to travel back to the nearest stronghold. But the road between Kingsland and Lincolnshire was long and treacherous, cutting through one of England's most dangerous marshlands, straddled by a bay called the Wash. King John's baggage train, full of accumulated wealth, including the crown jewels, proceeded across the estuaries at a territory called Wisbech. Think the long processional horse-drawn carrots and wagons from Game of Thrones, carrying gold-splendored supplies, and you have an idea of what this line of men and wagons might look like. The train traveled through the waters, and legend has it that the front of the processional, including King John himself, made it through the shallows without much difficulty. But his treasury was not so lucky. As the back of the train traveled through the water, the tide came in higher and higher, and the ground became more unstable. Weighed down by all of that wealth, the carriages, horses, and men sunk into the sand and mud as waves crashed over them. King John's war assets and funds were drowned, along with his men and his horses. All of that gold, won or stolen from baron and peasant alike, was lost to the Black Deep. King John tried in vain to search for his treasure, but the vicious tides and accumulated sands erased it from history, a miscalculated and foolish effort punished by nature, or perhaps an act of God. Even a king cannot recover from a loss that great. With neither the will nor funds to fuel his armies, King John's condition grew worse by the day. He reached the safety of Newark Castle and then almost immediately died in bed. Abandoned by his allies and army alike, a group of sellswords escorted his body to Worcester Cathedral, where he was entombed in a sarcophagus. What remains of King John can be found there to this day. And as of what remains of this treasure, well... anybody about King John, and the first thing that tends to come to mind is the primary villain of Robin Hood. Mm, Sure, the Sheriff of Nottingham was always up to no good and making trouble for the Merry Men, but he was just the Darth Vader to King John's Emperor Palpatine. John was born on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1166, and his parents were sort of famous. Henry II, as you might guess from a long line of famous British Henrys, was the King of England. And his wife wasn't just another pretty face, but Eleanor of Aquitaine, better known as that Henry had all of England, and Eleanor, as her name might suggest, had Aquitaine. Now, heads up, there's a lot of kingdoms and names of places I'm going to name drop that no longer exist as they did back then. So, bear with. This power couple ruled over what we refer to nowadays as the Angevin Empire. This was back when France was a bit more English than we'd recognize it today, and England stretched onto the European continent. Now, This empire was hardly stable, because when you suddenly smash two cultures together and tell them to behave, it doesn't always work out. And the farther into France you got, you'd see that more people didn't even care about King Henry Part 2. Sadly, John might have been doomed from the start. He was hardly raised in a loving household, and his parents were at each other's throats. See, Eleanor had once been one of the leaders of a little thing called the Second Crusade, so she wasn't used to being just somebody's wife, even if that somebody happened to be the King of England. When his main son, also a Henry, started to amass power, she decided to put son against father and start gobbling up territory for herself. And Henry II was probably like, honey what the I mean these days Eleanor would have just had to drop a video album and call it a day, but back then the way you reigned in your husband was literally putting your people's armies against his. So poor John got stuck between two crazy parents who didn't really do all that much to raise him right. Not good. Despite this lack of a positive upbringing, John grew up to become a charismatic and smart teenager. Kind of a trendy hipster nerd. He liked instrumental music and developed an early appetite for gems and minerals. He also liked, and I quote, bad wine. So I assume the medieval equivalent of Franzia. We all know a John who went to our college. But John's crazy parents may have passed on their craziness to him. As John was known to be a bit manic, turning on a dime from happy-go-lucky to extremely sensitive and angry, so much so that it is documented that he would bite and gnaw at his fingers during fits of rage. John was also in the shadow of his brothers, who all grew up to be fairly successful. Henry II each handed them a castle. Richard gets Aquitaine. And to Brittany goes Geoffrey. You go, Geoffrey, And none for little Johnny. Bye! To rub it in, Henry II named his own son Lackland, as in lacking lands of his own. Because dads, right? Based on this, you might have guessed that Henry II wasn't going to be winning Father of the Year of Our Lord anytime soon. And in 1173... John's older brothers got sick of dear old dad, sided with their much cooler mom, and staged a rebellion against him. It didn't work out, of course, but Henry II was pretty forgiving. Oh you boys. But Eleanor, for her efforts, got locked up. It's fine though, because Eleanor would get her moment later, and also went on to live a ripe old age of 83. Which was like 200 years old back then, pretty much. All of this rebellion meant that John, who wasn't involved in the revolt, automatically became Henry II's favorite son. And it was a good thing Thanksgiving hadn't been invented yet, because those family gatherings would have been awkward. And since this family is so messed up and can't stop fighting each other, Richard and Junior eventually get into it over Aquitaine, and then Junior eventually gets sick and dies. So we're one brother-dad at this point. This meant Henry II had to shuffle the succession, which nobody seemed to like because then Geoffrey and Richard decided to go to war with each other. But this war ended in a stalemate and everyone was kind of forced to make up. In 1185, King Henry was getting sick of John being like, But daddy, I want a kingdom of my own! So Henry looked at Ireland and was like, Eh, you can have that dump, I guess. But then the Pope at the time, Lucius III, was like, Um, Actually, you can't just do that. What are you, crazy? Mostly because the Irish had just become conquered and were kind of not cool with England to begin with, but they did love them some Catholicism. The Pope had a good thing going on, and some kid wasn't going to move in and take that away from him. Except Prince John did exactly that, and then proceeded to make fun of the Irish and their beards. And if you know anything about the Irish, you don't mess with their beards. Or was it beer? Both? Eh. Anyways, John certainly didn't win over the Irish, and they gave him the boot. John whined and blamed his viceroy because, as you'll soon learn, John, not very good at taking personal accountability. In 1186, John's brother, Geoffrey, was killed in a tournament, which meant that John was one step closer to ruling the throne. Meanwhile, the Third Crusades were rolling around. Richard saw an opportunity to cement his status as best king of England ever. I mean, if you can turn around a whole crusade and win back the Holy Land, you're pretty much top shelf, right? But Richard had seen what happened when the aristocracy comes to blows, so he went around on a goodwill campaign giving people titles left and right, and basically buying people's loyalty so he wouldn't have to come back from a holy war and deal with putting down rebellions. And one of the people he bought out was his own brother, John who he didn't trust as far as he could throw him. Richard gave him a castle, a shiny new wife, Isabella of Gloucester, and a bunch of territories to rule over, short of ruling England proper. In return, Richard told him to stay the F out of England until he got back from the Holy Land, because he was to him. To ensure that England was being ruled properly in his absence, Richard left the keys to the kingdom in the hands of a powerful bishop and a chancellor, the one-two combo of church and authority. And this would have been great! But no sooner had Richard stepped one foot into the middle of the Crusades, the chancellor up and died, and the bishop turned out to be incompetent. Eleanor of Aquitaine convinced Richard to let John back into England so he could tidy up his affairs, and reluctantly, Richard relented. Though this bishop, Longchamp, was still technically the substitute teacher for this terrible classroom called England, everybody hated him so john did what megalomaniacs do best capitalized on this hateration and turned the people against him but the bishop wasn't going to take this lying down and he sicked his armies on the assertion in return john was like oh this is so gauche and rallied the people of london to toss longchamp's ecclesiastical butt into the tower of london effectively taking over as de facto ruler When Richard heard about this, he rolled his eyes and was like, oh, of course, this is so John. And he sent his BFF, Walter, the Bishop of Rouen, to try and restore a semblance of order. But then Philippe II, the King of France, had come back from the Crusades early, and John knew he had an opportunity to make an alliance. So John basically wanted to sell out his brother to the king, but Eleanor got wind of this and said, no... Still, Richard hadn't returned from the war, so everyone was starting to get a bit nervous that the king had died in battle, as tended to happen. Uh, Everyone except John, of course. Meanwhile, in Austria, Richard had been captured by the emperor, who decided that he could fetch a pretty penny on what was literally a king's ransom. So Eleanor had to go bail her baby boy out by raising funds and taxing the heck out of the populace, while meanwhile, get this... John and Philip II, his bad new influence, tried to raise an even bigger amount to keep Richard imprisoned. It didn't work. And when Philip II got word of Richard's release and prompt return, he sent a message to Richard that said, Look to yourself, the devil is loose. The medieval equivalent of Molly, you in danger, girl. All the while, John's followers and Richard's loyalists were fighting with each other. So when Richard came back in 1194, having earned the title Richard the Lionheart, he was pissed. 27-year-old John escaped to Normandy, but Richard tracked him down. You're a child, Richard said, and he literally did say that. But he couldn't stay mad at his little brother, and blamed his brother's rebellion on his council. Incidentally, many historians and King John apologists agree. Still, he took away John's toys, namely every land he owned except Ireland, because as we all know, nobody wanted Ireland anyway. John decided to suck up and play nice, and he stopped hanging out with that troublemaker Philip II, actively campaigning against him while Richard made all sorts of grand alliances with local charities that wanted to bask in the Lionheart's glory. This was enough to earn Richard's forgiveness, and he began giving John his old lance back. He himself continued to fight against Philip II in France. On March 25th, 1199, Richard was taking a leisurely stroll around an enemy castle, like you do, investigating their fortifications. It was known that archers would occasionally shoot at approachers, but these arrows rarely hit their mark. An interesting archer, who had been literally beating back the opposition's arrows with a frying pan, caught Richard's attention because this is what passed for internet memes back then. The archer took aim at Richard, who reared his head back in laughter, until he noticed that he'd been shot on the shoulder by the archer's companion. Richard was more annoyed than anything, but had a hell of a tough time removing the shaft from his shoulder. Though his doctors did the best they could, remember what era of history this is. In the process of removing the arrow, they nearly removed Richard's whole arm. The wound became infected, and Richard called for his assailant's capture. But when his soldiers brought him the would-be assassin, it turned out to be nothing but a mere boy. The young man told Richard that he had shot him because the king had killed his father and brothers during the war, and he wanted revenge. Though this would have easily put his head on the chopping block, for some reason, and historians, they're still not clear on this, Richard spared the boy's life, even though he himself was just days away from death. He bequeathed his lands and the throne to his brother John. John, naturally, was thrilled to hear about this, but there was just one problem. The people of Brittany believe that Arthur, who was John's older brother, Geoffrey's son, was the proper heir. And because Philip II loved to stir the pot, he supported Arthur. War, yet again, broke out between the rival forces. Though Eleanor, who was, again, still alive, supported her own son. And here's where things get a little unsolved mysteries, which I obviously love, but sadly this isn't that kind of podcast. We, as in we in 2017, don't exactly know what happened to Arthur. There's plenty of conjecture and speculation, and much of it points to John's moral character. We know that Arthur was eventually captured and imprisoned in a castle in Normandy, and he was watched over by one of John's associates, the Lord William de Browse. Chroniclers believe that John ordered Arthur's assassination outright, as he was the only person standing in his way to the throne. To avoid carrying out the dirty work, William had Arthur spirited away to the French city of Rouen and kept under guard. Whatever the case, Arthur vanished in April 1203. Some think that John managed to gain audience with Arthur in private. This account says that after dinner on Maundy Thursday, and that's the Thursday before Good Friday for non-Episcopals out there, John got rip-roaring drunk and in a frenzy killed his nephew himself then tied a stone to his corpse, at which point he threw the body into the Seine. The reason why this was never reported was that it was later discovered by a fisherman, and then buried in secret, lest John find out and kill all who came across it, in order to cover up the crime. Super season one of Game of Thrones. Others say that William de Brow ended up carrying out the rumored assassination himself, and this is substantiated by William's wife, Maud, who accused her husband of the act after she had gotten into a fight with King John. But there was little evidence, and William's initial hesitancy to even harm Arthur at all points to his innocence. this one, unfortunately, remains a cold case. At this point in time, John had lost way too many battles in the conflict and Philip II had come to kick him while he was down. Eventually, the conflict was settled by the pope, who is starting to get annoyed. This in turn produced the Treaty of Le Goulet, in which the two kings basically decided to keep what they had and recognize each other as sovereign rulers of their respective countries. Though this settled the score after John had led so many armies on so many campaigns to just essentially give up, Well, it garnered him some serious backlash. All of his men started calling him a giant wuss, claiming that his older brother, Richard, would be ashamed. And they gave him the dubious nickname of John Softsword. Burn. There was also the matter of having spent so much money in war to win next to nothing from it. So John made the brilliant decision to raise hefty taxes... That whole taxation without representation thing that everyone loathes and hates so much. And this, combined with his previous reputation as a snake, made King John a very, very unpopular ruler indeed. The greater populace didn't even want King John in power, and he'd only really gotten there thanks to the meddling of an enemy country after negotiating an underhanded and shady truce which caused him to suddenly turn around and say oh they're our friends now guys, once he got what he wanted. And King John promised he would nevertheless make England stronger, greater, hand out privileges, expel foreigners, and make the rich richer. The only people who really supported him were his own rabid inner circle and extremist followers, and apparently he wasn't all that bright either, and not very good with all that wealth he claimed to have accumulated. Wow, I just just can't imagine someone like that in power and in charge of a whole entire country. Can you? Aside from the loss of King John's treasure, most of the story around this point takes a decidedly more legendary tone and has been interpreted among historians for centuries. We all know the stories about Robin Hood. From serious takes such as the one starring Errol Flynn, to more farcical accounts of men in tights, to animated cartoon foxes that are portrayed more attractive than what's necessary. And for the three of you who don't know the legend, Robin Hood was a former crusader who gave up his accolades once he returned home to see what a whole England had become after King John got his hands on the throne. Though he started out as a yeoman, whatever that means, he soon became a champion of the downtrodden. Sir Robin took the decidedly more roguish moniker of Robin Hood and went on to become a highwayman who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. But how much of these legends are true? Well, to help clear up this confusion, I turn to one of the few British friends I had on Facebook who, much like Britain's reigning queen, Adele, goes by one name, Dom. Or at least for the sake of this podcast he does. And I must have hit the jackpot on the first go because not only does Dom have his master's degree in history and also had an internship at the BBC, but get this, King John was his ancestor. Or as Dom put it offhandedly, he was like his great to the 16th power grandfather. And apparently this isn't that big of a deal, I'm told, because it's like Genghis Khan and how like everyone in Asia is related to him, but still really cool. So without further ado, our special guest from across the pond.
1: Um. Well, you know, I'll be wary of assigning any um, contemporary power to the legend of Robin Hood. Uh, the very earliest tales and ballads, they they don't actually take form until about, um, well, over 100 years later. Um, there is no such thing as folk literature written in the English language in the 12th and 13th century. Um, anything we do have, uh, you know, actual proper literature is, is written in French. The story itself was possibly, you know, an older uh, oral creation in a popular society that, you know, relies almost exclusively on the rit- on the uh, spoken word. Um, so I- I'd be personally tempted to place its genesis at least some decades after John's death. Uh, you know, I often think sub- Subversive legends like Robin Hood—they often say more about their own times of civil strife, um, under some diversionary veil of antiquity, than they do about any long-dead king. But on the other hand, John is an extremely good, um, you know, choice of proxy for this because y- y- you can use him without any kind of retribution from the nobility or, or the church. Sure quite capable of stamping out any impudent tales if they wished, but uh, both have great reasons for spitting on his legacy. Uh, I, I mean, th- th- this is a guy who, who didn't just tax his lords into debt or confiscate church property during a papal interdict. Uh, no, no. Uh, apparently he even had, um, great story, the mistresses of priests held to ransom as a double blow against the church's wealth and moral authority. So, you know, he's uh, kidna- kidnapping their women, which is obviously pretty horribly embarrassing for the churchmen. Um, not a great kind of uh, moral stand on his point because he was probably the biggest w- womanizer in the kingdom, though. So, um, But the, the notion that Robin Hood you know what was even supposed to be a subject of king john and and not a later monarch is up for grabs he he exists in his own own little um universe anyway uh the 15th to 16th century uh story guests of robin hood um from which uh, several of the features of our modern retellings uh, especially in movies of the legend drive um like for instance that archery contest that uh robin Wins much to you know the king and the sheriff's consternation. Um, that comes from Gaston Robin Hood, uh, but that names the king as Edward, and there was no post-conquest king by that name until Edward I. So, so that's 1272, and and you might know Edward I as the arch enemy of William Wallace in Braveheart, for example.
0: On the 13th of July, 1205, the Archbishop of Canterbury died, and started to get real. At that point in history, it wasn't weird for the king to appoint bishops and exert a certain degree of influence over the church. But if King John wasn't a straight-up atheist, he was a sinner of the highest degree. He'd already given the pope's headaches for all the conflicts he liked to foment. John wanted to appoint John de Cray as an archbishop because he was just a huge butt-kisser, but the other bishops were like, what? Him? Are you crazy? And they had the support of the Pope, so they chose someone else in secret. When John found out, he was expectedly annoyed and sent a message to Rome saying that John de Grey was going to be the new bishop and who the hell was going to stop him from doing so. And the answer to that, my friends, was Pope Innocent III, who was like, okay, cool, so I'm just going to appoint whoever the heck I want, because, oh, that's right, you may be the king, but I'm basically lord of Europe's religion. And the pope chose, ostensibly, the best dude for the job, a fellow named Stephen Langton, who was a brilliant scholar and theologian. He was committed to the cause and would not be bought out. Naturally, King John hated him, and he outright forbade his consecration, but the Pope said no. In turn, John threatened anybody he supported the new bishop with death, and had Langton and the monks of Canterbury exiled. John had finally come up against the one enemy he could not buy out or bully, the Catholic Church. The Pope was unflinching in his decision. And to drive the point home, he literally shut down all religious functions in England beside the essentials, like baptisms and burials. And then he had John excommunicated from the church, which probably wasn't a big deal to John anyway. To rub it in, though, he had Philip II carry out the sentencing. King John decided to do what he did best and tax the heck out of his own people in response. Around this time, the Pope was so furious that he reportedly drew up a secret order to have John overthrown. But... He didn't get that far, because the fear of usurpation may have caused John to finally break and call for a papal truce. The nobility at this point was out of patience. All this over a bishop you didn't like? But John's whole game was taking petty to new heights. To the credit of the church, they really stuck to the whole Christian forgiveness thing and were totally willing to negotiate and absolve John of his misdeeds. And of course, they were also just really exhausted. Though John had somewhat smoothed things over with the church, his aristocrats were kind of another story. The barons, who had arguably more of a pulse on popular consensus than the king, were sick of paying taxes to a king who wouldn't win them any new lands. Plus, the barons in the north, near Scotland, didn't even really care about France anyway. In 1214, the failed campaign against the French resulted in the barons staging a rebellion, with even John's most loyal followers joining up with the resistance. Then it didn't take long. John, of course, being far from a cool head, was all too willing to throw his country into the fires of war, just to prove a point. The church saw this and knew they had to step in sooner than later. Archbishop Stephen Langton, who was more intellectual and arguably more compassionate than anybody else in the story, began to try and intercede on behalf of the Pope. John, who had no sense of loyalty and all sense of opportunism, tried to kiss up to the church by claiming he was totally going to join the crusades at some point, and the church was like, sure you will buddy, sure you will. But they also had their hands tied up in this whole rebellion fiasco. So John went to Stephen Langton, a meeting that I imagined was super awkward, and said, okay, whatever, bro, just fix this for me. Langton knew that he would need to forge a contract that would grant liberties and protections to all parties and work under a common sense of law. What he could not possibly know at the time was that he was about to write one of the most important documents in all of human history a charter known as Magna Carta. Even today, most of our laws and freedoms in the English-speaking world can be traced to the spirit of this document, which dictated that no man, even the king, was above common law. Of course, this didn't apply to everybody.
1: To the core of the matter, the war war over, you know, that precipitates the Magna Carta happens afterwards. It's not really about the rights of the common man anyway. Magna Carta isn't composed um, for the common man. It refers specifically to free men. And we're talking about, what, one in 10 men in England at this time? You know, the, the legacy of Magna Carta is a lot more significant than the original document itself. The original document signed by King John lasts for all of a month. We don't really owe John any credit for signing it as he had no interest in maintaining it. He eggs on the deal uh, and asked the Pope for help as soon as he could regather his forces. The, the ink is barely dry. Uh, and Then, as we know, he restarts the war and promptly died. Um, or not that the barons were much better; they they didn't exactly honor their side of the deal either. But you know, we we do have to thank John for dying at such a perfect moment because those um, those articles that he has no interest in honoring. Um, they're brought back the next year in you know Magna Carta twelve sixteen, because um, the matter is, it gets this war that he's just that John uh, restarts it, it gets worse. The King of France and the King of Scotland um, get involved in this. Um, how is the minority government of of just a little boy? uh Henry III how are they how could they possibly respond to this apart from reissuing you know the, these these liberties that had supposedly be gr- been granted the previous years so so yeah i mean it's, it, it, it it then grows from there it becomes the you know a major constitutional document it it gets reissued for every constitutional constitutional crisis throughout the 13th century and it makes its way uh, by the by the time of Edward uh, the first.
0: With all great empires, it can be hard sometimes to separate legend from fact, especially in a time where history is relegated to a specific class. We see this in ancient China and ancient England as well. And we see this in the legends of King Arthur, whose existence is still hotly debated. Unfortunately, King John outside of the Robin Hood mythos, is more easily defined. His treasure and its legacy, however, are a different story entirely. First, let's examine the supposed contents of the baggage train that was lost in the wash that fateful day. Because records were either simply not kept or lost to time, we don't know the contents of the treasury. But with what circumstantial evidence is out there, we can estimate the value of the trove at 70... And then it's like six zeros. And there are very good theories and speculations surrounding the more eye-catching articles among the trove. One of these is the Crown Jewels of England, which, as Dom pointed out to me, are on their third iteration. Though the current reliquary of the monarchs is kept safely locked in the Tower of London, back in the day, it wasn't so easy to guard a treasure. You know, before the invention of the Spring Lock. The most important relic among these is what many would consider the first real crown of England, which takes inspiration from the last Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor. William the Conqueror, who started the one king to rule them all concept in Britain that we're familiar with today, was the one who began the traditional wearing of a crown to show everybody who was boss. However, a hundred years after he took the throne, Edward had since been recognized as a saint. Interred in the famous Westminster Abbey. According to the monks there, and keep in mind the veracity, Edward had issued a decree upon his death that his crown would sit atop the head of all future kings of England. And that crown, passed down from king to king since then, has become known as Saint Edward's Crown, which has existed in multiple incarnations throughout history. When John's young successor, Henry III, was coronated, it was noted by those in the know that the crown looked kind of different and may have been lost when King John's train of stuff took a long dip in the wash. Others say that the crown at Henry III's coronation was the real deal and lasted until the English Civil War, at which point Oliver Cromwell and Parliament had the crown melted down for beer money, I guess. In 1661, a replica was made for Charles II when the monarchy was restored, and that is the current version that is on display in the Tower of London. Of a more dubious credence, it is believed that one of the other super important items in King John's list was none other than Tristan's sword. Tristan was one of the knights who served at King Arthur's Round Table, according to legend, that is, and he came from a land called Lyonesse, which, curiously, never seems to have existed. Or did it? Worth another episode, perhaps? Tristan also featured in his own romantic adventure, in which he and his lover Isol undergo many difficulties in order to run off and get hitched. Like Robin Hood, there is no real historical basis for Tristan, which makes this being his sword highly unlikely. But kings back then weren't really concerned with authenticity so much as gravitas. So, there you go. Perhaps the most frustrating aspect of the story aside from King John himself, is that we sort of know where the treasure might be. We just can't access it. The two things stopping anybody from digging it up are that the exact location is kind of unknown, and it's probably buried under tons and tons of mud and silt accumulation. That's kind of the problem with the ocean, it tends to rise up and drastically change the landscape. Wherever John's train coasted around the sea has now been buried under the encroachment of the Wash, One theory has it that the treasure might be more readily located near Sutton Bridge, which would have been a logical point of crossing. Another possibility is that King John kept the treasures on his person and sent the train as a diversion, or with less valuable goods. So if that was the case, where and how did he lose it before ending up at his final destination? Well, thanks to the power of SCIENCE! We may not have exactly found the spot where the treasure was lost, but we do have a good idea where King John's train may have passed through. In January of 2015, archaeologist Ben Robinson made use of an elaborate laser imaging system known as Light Detection Ranging, or LIDAR. It involves both lasers and a plane, so you know that's going to be intense. And by bouncing this laser between the aircraft and the ground, the light beam can map out the depth and density of the Earth. Cross-referencing this with satellite imaging creates a map that illustrates how the local geography may have changed over the eras, what the landscape looks like now, versus the time of King John. This may help us in pinpointing the approximate route taken by King John and his army as they marched by the sea. So, it's a start but it doesn't exactly account for the precise location. Without a way to pinpoint the radius where the baggage train fell into the sea, there's simply too much ground, and water, and mud, to cover. That said, some people may have accidentally stumbled upon pieces of the treasure already. In the 1970s, two excavators were digging up the ground for a new sewerage system near the area, Weston Walton. Lou Gray and Alan Rowe had been using heavy duty equipment, powerful enough to penetrate 18 feet into the earth. Earlier that morning, Gray had joked to his colleague that they were going to find King John's treasure that afternoon. So imagine their surprise when they came upon a perfectly intact jar, among other unusual pieces of pottery. They took the pot back up and tried to convince the team of the find but by the next day, the hole had been reburied. For many years, Gray kept the clay pot in his garage, and only recently has it been submitted for testing and analysis. The article that reports this is from 2016, so stay tuned for an update. Ugh, I wish they'd work faster. I'm doing a podcast here. How ridiculous is it though that we may have gotten that close to finding the buried loot only for it to get reburied by a sewer? Actually, it would be a very fitting, and totally hilarious, end to King John's legacy. What's so exciting about this treasure in particular is that we do, theoretically at least, have a slight chance at recovering it again. Because the fact of the matter is, people have found coins and weapons from medieval times simply by scouring the earth with a metal detector. In 2009, a massive hoard of buried armaments dating from the time of the Anglo-Saxons was discovered by a metal detectorer in a field near Staffordshire. The total value was over 3 million pounds. An entire club devoted to metal detection found 5,000 coins inside a lead bucket, perhaps an early piggy bank, buried under the earth near Aylesbury for roughly around the same period. And this stuff is way before the reign of King John. Then there's that recent story of the little girl who pulled a sword out from the lake where king arthur received excalibur and though that sword turned out to be the result of a pagan ritual hey a little girl got a giant sword and that's totally a platform i support considering how terrible of a person he was in real life it's kind of on brand that king john essentially took his wealth to the grave. There is an incredible amount of ambiguity over the treasure's resting place, but can we say the same of King John himself? Well, I'm not qualified enough to make that judgment. So, I will leave the final word on the subject to more informed minds.
1: He was a really horrible person. He was a hateful fellow, and, and it doesn't help that he had a famous, you know, uh, crusading brother who, well, we can argue quite a lot about whether rich was a good king or not but um but of the time was considered you know the ma- ma- major chivalrous example um so king john was you know he was treacherous he betrayed his his brother he was a famed womanizer he would uh, he could you know he offended the the honor of quite a few uh, noble families, and you might run off with your, you know, your your wife, your daughter. He killed, he uh, he locked, I think, like twenty knights up in a castle and starved them to death. I mean, we're, we're talking about sort of major crimes against uh, against chivalry here. So, I mean, there have been attempts to rehabilitate him in some ways, but I think you'll find that any scholarly kind of most scholarly uh, examinations of this the consensus broadly is is he's probably one of the worst kings ever to sit on the throne of england and i have to agree
0: <laughs> relic is written and produced by me maxwell the amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by devon if you like this podcast and want to bend the knee you can leave a fourth or five star rating in itunes so other people can find out about it you can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or corrections, please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's Blueberry without the E's. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next time, Avast and Yoho and rum and all that, it's the pirate episode! Raise the sails because adventure continues.